Good morning, everybody. This is your old friend Phil Bell back here at it again in the studio in the E. Hunter Harrison Chair for Advanced Railroad Studies. And as always, I'm your highly trained rail enthusiast here on another excursion into transport excellence. Now, today is a relatively short episode. I didn't want to take a lot of your time because we had such a great time over the weekend at the Great American Train and Toy Show in Hampton, Virginia. To give you a little background, we do these shows for two reasons. First of all, we got to make some money. You know what? I love this. I love working with you. I love talking about trains. I love being a part of this hobby. And that's the reason why I want to make a few dollars doing it. And so I hope that you will support the show by going over to our Patreon, which will be linked in the description, and becoming a subscriber. The second reason why we do these shows is so that I can share with you a lot of what's going on in a much more personal way. Number one, whether it's my photography, so you can see some of the places where I go and train pictures that I've been able to take, but also so that we can talk in person about just a variety of different things, whether it is in one case talking about training operations and the cultures of some of the major U.S. railroads to just having discussion about the history. Uh, one of the folks that came up to the table told me how his first train ride was on the CNO going to Buckrow Beach and uh, actually rode it out to the Hampton train station, which still exists. It was a restaurant until about a, earlier this year, actually, and then got on a bus from there to Buckrow Beach as part of a church group. So learning these things, meeting a lot of you in person, it's an amazing time. What worries me, though, as I go to a lot of the train shows is that it appears our hobby is in a little bit of a decline because it's strange. On one hand, when it comes to model trains, there is so much out there. You can get a super detailed version of an EMD E8 that looks like somebody actually took the shrink ray, uh, hit a real E8 with it, and now it's this big, 187th of the scale, in your on your layout. Uh, that's great. And frankly, the prices for that, although they can be, you know, as low as just slightly under $200 and then up to close to 500, those prices are actually pretty amazing because when I was modeling full time, uh, as an HO scale model railroader, you couldn't get anything like that. The only way you possibly could is if you purchased a brass engine. And even then the brass engines didn't necessarily have the best drive quality. They were not easy to obtain. Uh, they cost a lot of money relative to other model trains that you would get. And even then you wouldn't necessarily have the detail that would give you, that you're getting now with a lot of the plastic items that are offered today. So in that respect, the hobby is actually improving. And I also love to see some of the new electronic gizmos and gadgets like DCC. And yeah, I know some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, Phil, DCC, uh, is not exactly new, I know, but it's new to me, okay? Because that was something that was still a concept when I was last seriously model railroading, so that's great. On the other hand, what's declining, though, as I go to these shows, you're seeing a lot fewer vendors, number one, and number two, you're seeing a lot fewer young people getting involved in anything other than the model railroading aspect of the hobby. And look, I'm not here to castigate. I know that I'm one of the few people who actually likes every different aspect of it. I'm a rivet counter one day. I love model railroading another day. I want to read about every aspect of the history of court decisions or uh, ICC rulings or otherwise another, and then simply just sitting around and shooting the breeze talking about what it was like to work for Conrail and another. I like every facet of railroading, which is why we call this all things trains. And I know that all of you aren't like that, but what I hope will happen is that more of you will take the opportunity to learn about different facets of railroading because without it, 
we aren't going to have, for example, a robust future for model railroading without understanding that and having more people interested. We're not going to have a robust future for railroadiana and a lot of the things that go along with this. So in order to keep this hobby alive, if you're out there, if you can see this broadcast, please take some time to, to explore other facets of railroading, something that you don't know, something that you might find boring. And I'll give you a little example. So when I was a kid, I love to read America's Colorful Railroads by Don Ball Jr. And by read, I mean leaf through the pictures and read the captions. And that was great. You know, as somebody who is seven, eight, nine years old, yep, you know, you can get away with that and you can actually learn a lot by looking closely at the equipment, seeing what's there, asking, well, how did they get this type, take this type of picture or what year was this and so forth. There's a lot to be gained from that. But one day I decided, you know what? Let me go to the back of the book. And in the back of the book was this printed section where they talk about the history of the diesel locomotive and how it works. And then it was like a light bulb went on with me. I learned everything that, number one, a diesel locomotive isn't a diesel locomotive. It's actually an electric locomotive that has its power generated on board by a diesel engine turning an electric generator. That the wheels weren't turned by something that approximated my grandmother's car's transmission. They were actually being turned by electric motors that were on the axles. This was a whole different world. And then that opened up for me so much more about railroading with that simple, small section. So while I know there are things that you might think, hey, look, that sounds like watching paint dry when somebody's talking about the difference between an SD50, an SD50M, and an SD50-3, and you just want to make sure that your model looks a lot like or close to approximating the real thing as possible, learn that. Take that time. Even if you simply just file that information away, you will be helping to make sure that our hobby as rail enthusiasts can continue for generations to come. And also, if you're somebody who knows about this, if you're somebody who spent time uh, restoring equipment, if you're somebody who's worked on the railroad and you are also a rail enthusiast, if you're somebody that's worked in the industry as an attorney and you find younger people who are interested, be willing to share with them. Now, you don't have to be pushy, but be willing to share with them because that will open new doors for them as well. And like I said, make sure that in 100 years, in 150, in 200 years, that whatever trains are running are going to be rail fanned, they're going to be modeled, they're going to be documented, chronicled, talked about, yelled about, you name it, and that they will continue to play an important role in our society. This is something that we as rail enthusiasts can do. Uh, Another thing that I wanted to talk about, and let me share my screen with you here is this story about the unita and i apologize to you in utah if i'm getting this wrong but the unita basin railway uh one of the courts here in dc that overrode the stb excuse me surface transportation board's decision to approve this new rail line, which would serve oil, gas, a lot of natural resources in Utah, and move it to Union Pacific's former Rio Grande main line. The railroad itself would be operated by Rio Grande Pacific, which is not related to the original Denver, Rio Grande, and Western, but is a short-line holding company. Uh, the court has said that they will not rehear the objections to their, uh, what I would call a very arbitrary and capricious decision to strike down the STB, Surface Transportation Board's ruling that the project can proceed. You see, what's very interesting about this is uh, Eagle County, Colorado, which is not part 
of the Anita Basin Railway, filed an objection and complained about environmentalism and all kinds of just what I typically say, and, you know, I hate to be this colloquial, but say wacko stuff, uh, but they are an example of a judicial entrepreneur, and the judicial entrepreneurs these days in America are much stronger than our railroad entrepreneurs, and they are having much greater success, and what I hope you'll do is go over to Railway Age, the couple of articles that we're going to link in the description, because they provide a very in-depth explanation of what's going on, what the project is, what it would serve, and why the court has chosen to rule against it, and why there are objections. But I also want you to do that to see why it's very difficult for our industry to grow. You see, everything that railroads do, freight railroads primarily, but also passenger railroads, has a very, very uh, large, uh, you know, there, there's a very large group of folks that will object to it and seek modifications based on so-called environmental reasons. Now, if you've listened to me for a long time, you know that I am a doctrinaire conservative Republican, and while that's not the primary thing that we like to talk about here on the All Aboard podcast, it does factor in because one of the reasons why I am a doctrinaire conservative Republican is because I noticed that railroads in the 50s, 60s, and 70s declined heavily because of the heavy yoke of federal regulation. The reason we had all of those bankruptcies, such as Penn Central, Lehigh Valley, Rock Island, and so on, one of the major reasons is because of so much regulation that made it impossible for railroads to be market actors. And when you look at this project, which, by the way, is sanctioned by local governments, and local governments are playing a very large role, something I'm not necessarily a fan of, but I'm glad to see that you have a recognition here that railroads can play an important part in our transportation infrastructure. And they are doing this in large part because the only way to move the oil, gas, and other natural resources there is by truck, therefore accomplishing actually a goal of the environmentalists, which is to reduce carbon footprint and make it easy, I shouldn't say easier, uh, make transportation uh, less so-called environmentally impactful. And yet here you have a court ruling in favor of a county that's not even in the same state as where this project would take place. And they say, well, wait a minute, there's all of these problems with the way the Surface Transportation Board has ruled, including calling their ruling arbitrary and capricious. But if you know anything about the Surface Transportation Board and its predecessor agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, large swaths of what they have done has been arbitrary and capricious. And I'm not saying that simply because I want to dunk on the current board, but I'm saying that because it's true. And that's been accepted, not only jurisprudence, but accepted uh, political strategy and approach taken for decades, but now suddenly because there's a project that will actually be beneficial, you have a court say, well, you know, you can't be arbitrary and capricious, especially because this isn't allowed under the Interstate Commerce Commission Termination Act, Uh, but in other situations they can be. This points to a major flaw in our legal system, which in itself is highly arbitrary and capricious and operates with no rules. So I hope you'll go over and learn a little bit about the Anita Basin case and why this is significant and will play an important role in what we are able to do uh, in the rail industry for years to come. And by the way, this isn't just about freight rail operations. This is about passenger rail operations too, because what you'll learn in these articles is the extensive approval process that must be done in order to build railroad track. And even if you're not necessarily building a full rail line as they're contemplating out in Utah, think about what happens when you want to put in an industrial siding. 
Think about what happens when you want to build an industry near the railroad tracks in order to be served. Some level of this is happening everywhere. And so this is a problem not only for rail transportation, but this is a problem for railroad customers uh, that would be served by those carriers. And you can only expect, regardless if it's Democrats or Republicans in the White House, Uh, over the next few decades, for this to become much more difficult. And I want you to add to that one thing that I discussed actually extensively at the train show, which is that most Americans don't seem to understand, know, or care very much about what what makes their lives. Everything that you see here in this uh, this video, including yours truly, has traveled by train at some point. So whether it is a TV potentially coming from overseas and being put on a shipping container that moves on a train in part to get to its final destination, or it could be the base materials that made the Brunswick Green PLB microphone moving in a potentially a tank car, hopper car, gondola, or otherwise, depending on what we're, what materials we're talking about, or finished products, again, moving in trailers for part of the way before they get on trucks. The railroad is an integral part of our everyday lives, even if we do not interact with it. So it's important that all of you, especially rail enthusiasts out there, are willing to let your members of Congress know. And again, uh, Republican or Democrat doesn't matter because all of them have done the wrong thing and gone in the wrong direction. So they all need to hear from you. We need to have a regulatory structure that facilitates growth as opposed to prevents growth and a regulatory structure that is hands off much more so than it is hands on, because this is an example of what is needed for the railroads to grow, for jobs, both union and non-union to grow. And for our businesses, the ones that we depend on to facilitate everything, everything uh, to have choice in transportation, it means that rulings like this should not be happening and efforts like this to constrain growth and constrain freedom should be stopped as much as possible. Now, another thing I wanted to chat with you about today comes to us from the state of Iowa where the Canadian National announced at the end of last week that they will be acquiring the Iowa Northern Railroad, which is a 275-mile carrier and has been one of the bright spots excuse me, in the short-line industry in recent years. I think CN acquiring Iowa Northern is very, very interesting because it goes with a pattern that we've seen over the past few years, really starting in 2015, which has seen Class 1 carriers growing as opposed to shrinking. So while CN is acquiring Iowa Northern, we've seen Canadian Pacific took over the uh, Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic, former Bangor and Aroostook, excuse me, Central Maine and Quebec. A lot of different names for that railroad out there. Um... Most recently, Central Maine and Quebec, they took that over, which gave them access to more New England ports, even though they were not heavily trafficked New England ports and also purchased back uh, a portion of railroad that they had been operating for close to a century when it was sold in the 1980s. We've seen CSX take over Pan Am, formerly Guilford Rail System, originally the Boston, Maine and Maine Central Railroads, as well as the Springfield Terminal, of course. So that was a major acquisition there. We saw Norfolk Southern grow by taking over a portion of Canadian Pacific's Delaware and Hudson. That was back in 2015, which is really what started, uh, I would argue, this recent trend. And, of course, we've seen the BNSF going to take back the Montana Rail Link, which was, uh, you know, at the time when it was sold in the 1980s, excuse me, leased uh, 
for a long period of time. And by the way, that lease took place not because the railroad was necessarily shy about letting the track go, but they had to do it in part because of bonds and other obligations that were related to those properties. Um, you know, it was not an integral part of their network, but then over time, it became what BNSF viewed as an integral part of their network. And so now with the owner, Dennis Washington, deciding that he would like to exit at least that portion of the business and the BNSF uh, and, you know, apparently wanting for a long time to take the railroad back over. And so that is something that is also happening in 2023. I am very interested to see what the result of this expansion in class one carriers is going to be. Now, if you listen to me talk for long enough, you know that I'm much more a believer in the uh, lean class one strong regional and short line model where you have short line and regional railroads doing a lot more. And I would say the lion's share of interacting with customers, whereas the class ones, I view them as being much more optimized for your long distance travel. And if you really look at railroading in the context of trucking, uh, you'll see that there are dramatic differences because it's really rare to see a truck other than a delivery truck. So we're talking about here, your 18 wheelers, uh, the tractor trailers you see going down the highway, you know, they typically get a load at point A and take the load to point B. They don't normally start at point A, make a stop over point B, then continue on to point C, make a pickup and a drop off, maybe add another trailer and go over here. They don't quite do that. Does happen in some cases, but it's far more rare than what you have on a railroad. And so if you were to go to some place like whether it's CSX, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific or otherwise, while you will see your through trains, high speed intermodals that fly right by you and are doing that point-to-point, hub-to-hub movement, you also will see a lot more manifest trains that will make pickups and setouts along their route. That is much more common than many people realize, and it is the opposite of the trucking company model because railroads are very successful when they're able to act as aggregators of traffic, taking all of the traffic that Farmer John might produce, uh, the Barbie doll factory might produce, and otherwise, and put them together in these trains and then use that economy of scale to offer lower prices to customers than they would otherwise pay if they were having to get one person to operate a truck each time they needed to make a shipment or receive a delivery. So it's interesting to see that Canadian National and some of these other carriers are acquiring some more of the smaller railroads where they're getting back into much more of that loose car railroading business where you're going to need to marshal crews in order to serve smaller industries and then take those to serving yards. The serving yards are going to make the trains even bigger and take them to more of your hub yards like uh, the old Allentown yard, which really doesn't function much as a classification yard anymore uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Enola Yard, which I know many of you have heard about from the Pennsylvania Railroad era, Conway Yard, since we're using Norfolk Southern Yards as an example, Conway Yard, which is still a very large classification facility. So taking it there and then putting it in manifest, which will continue to make pickups and setoffs along the way as they move. That was a much more expensive business model. Uh, which is why you saw over many years a lot of the large railroads getting out of it and spinning it off to short lines, which became carriers like the Iowa Northern. So I, you know, not uh, negative. 
don't get me wrong when you listen to this on the strategy and, and what they're doing. But I think it's very interesting because, as I said, again, I'm much more a proponent of the short line and regional model. I would like to see more short lines and regionals, and I would like to see them become larger carriers. Maybe not quite to the extent of the post-World War II era, where you had railroads like we've been discussing with the Seaboard Airline and the Atlantic Coastline. That's a little bit larger than what I'm contemplating here, but I would like to see more of those stronger and growing because more of those carriers will ultimately, in my view, be able to funnel more business to carriers like Canadian National and CSX and make those even stronger railroads because what really does concern me is recently with the um, labor agreements uh, in the railroads, as well as what you're seeing in industries that are serving the railroads like the auto industry, there will be a dramatic increases in wages that are coming to a lot of the rank and file. And a lot of you are working with for railroads, and so you're going to be very happy to see those paychecks go up, but it's going to be a delicate balancing act for management because as those paychecks go up and those costs rise, there's going to have to be corresponding increases in both the volume of business and the price that these customers pay in order to be able to pay those bills. Uh, we're not talking about making profits here. We're talking about paying the bills of the people who do paying the bills of the people who do the work. And that means we're talking about wages and salaries here. So uh, in order to do that, there's going to have to be substantial increases. So uh, the hope is that acquisitions such as Pan Am and Iowa Northern and otherwise are ultimately going to lead to that growth. And then finally, uh, just one last quick thing, because this is also a little bit of a crossover episode to our other podcast, the I Hate Big Tech podcast, because you remember your buddy Phil here. I love trains and I hate big tech. Uh, I wanted to also talk about going back to where we were in the beginning, talking about the um, the train shows. It's interesting to note how much in the way of different types of rail enthusiasts we have. So I have had a very interesting time learning much more about the market for model trains, railroadiana, and you name it, books, magazines, everything over the past year. This has been eye-opening for me because as someone who has loved trains since he was a baby, and that is true, I was I was born this way, as Lady Gaga would say, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to get to know what each of us, whether we're talking about former rail employees, current rail employees, uh, casual rail enthusiasts, big time rail enthusiasts, and so on, what differences there are among all of us, what we like, what we don't like, how we pursue the hobby. Uh, I think it's, it's just very interesting as somebody who is building a business in the hobby, but also as someone who simply likes to get to know people and make friends is, uh, you know, all, all the different distinctions. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, one of the main things that we sell are railroad timetables. So I have a lot of employee timetables and public timetables. Now, uh, one of the big reasons I sell them is because I can't keep them all myself. And I think it doesn't make sense if even if I were to keep them in boxes, well, who would ever see them? Who would get to enjoy them? Who would get to use that knowledge? Now, I've always looked at these as being very valuable assets to rail enthusiasts because, for example, if you're building a model railroad and you want to know how the Canadian National Supercontinental would have looked back in 1967, well, you can look at pictures, but pictures aren't always going to tell the whole story because you see a beautiful train. And by the way, the 1960s era, Supercontinental with former Milwaukee Road Skytop, 
uh, observation cars and full domes was a beautiful train, an incredibly beautiful train. But outside of the skydop, the baggage car and the domes, how can you tell what the other cars are? Well, one of the ways you do it is by going to a public timetable, because oftentimes the public timetables of those days would have information on the different car line numbers that were there. So you could say uh, coaches, uh, 21 roomette sleepers and so on, all of which is being offered. I don't believe CN offered those, but uh, just as an example. So you could look at that and then you could use that as a way of determining what you're going to go buy when you're looking for your HO scale passenger cars or what you're going to have to kit bash as you realize, well, you can't get a 21 roomette sleeper that you know closely approximates the former Pennsylvania and N&W cars. So that's why I've always looked at that as valuable. But at the same time, when you run into somebody who, for example, has their Canadian national hat and Canadian national shirt, there's a very good chance they already have several of those timetables. So that's probably not going to be your customer unless he is looking to complete his collection of a specific year or a specific uh, period. So they're usually not you know, your ideal customer for that. On the other hand, we have a lot of young people who were talking about earlier uh, who haven't gotten into every facet of it yet. And so we're trying to open those doors to them so that they'll have an opportunity to see that. And it's getting them to say, well, okay, here's how I want you to look at this. And if you do, then some of these products will become more interesting to you. So it's just a little um, insight into what it's taken to build this type of business and kind of the ups and downs. But overall, I've had a lot of fun uh, interacting with a lot of you folks in person, getting to talk about trains. I could do it all day. The only thing I'd like to do one day is actually open up a rail fan lounge at one of these so we could sit back, drink our bourbon, or in this case, since it's the morning, iced tea out of my Penn Central mug that I got from Mohawk Designs, by the way. It's a terrific company. And... Uh, you know, shoot the breeze and learn more of what you learned and, and share a little bit about what I have. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, we will see you later on this week, and there will be a bonus episode, as I mentioned, the Erie Lackawanna from October. So it looks a little bit different than what we have now because our studio is so much better. But we'll have that and talk a little bit about the EL. We'll have a few more exciting items for you coming later this week. And again, our next episode will be on Wednesday at 1 p.m. So. We'll see you down the line, and I hope you have a great day.